All right, so I'm excited to be here tonight. As uh, Zach said, my name is Kenny Walmsley. I am Sarah Walmsley's husband. She's right there. Raise your hand. 11 months and some change. We made it happen. And I'm also the pastor of junior high ministry here. Oh, oh, by the way, since that's my wife, Ruth is my sister-in-law. So there's that too. Yep. I take credit for her. All right. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, and so the only reason I'm up here is because Zach had a baby. So I don't think I'd be up here otherwise. No, I'm kidding. Uh, he might have still asked me. But no. Uh, um, so, but if you don't see me again, that might actually be the real reason why I'm only up here. So, <laughs> um, so tonight we're going to continue the series of the hard sayings of Jesus. Um, we as a culture love cute little sayings, right? We love to put bumper stickers on our car, cute little sayings. We have signs that have cute little sayings. Those very things apply to the Bible, right? We like to put the fluffy verses in our house. Like, I can think of many of them. I'm not going to name all of them because I don't want to expose anybody in this room. But we do that. But we don't think about the hard sayings of Jesus. We don't really like to pay attention to the hard sayings of Jesus. So what about sayings like Jesus seemingly speaking against family? What about the parable of the dishonest manager? These are all hard things. And the reality is that Jesus holds the words of eternal life in his hands, and he has given them to us. So we need to actually look at the hard things because those matter. Those are life-giving to the disciples of the time. By extension, they are life-giving to us. And so tonight, we're going to be in Matthew 15. So if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there, you can. Matthew 15:26 says, And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, this is in an interaction between the disciples, Jesus, and a Canaanite woman. And so kind of our subheading is the hard sayings of Jesus. <laughs> Jesus calls a woman a dog. And so that is very hard. That, no, one's put, no one's putting that on a sign. No one's putting that on a bumper sticker. Nobody's getting that tattooed on their arm. Like, it's just not happening. And so we need to talk about it. We can't just skip over these sayings. And so when Zach asked me to teach, I was pretty, I was pretty excited because uh, I love it when Jesus says hard things. I love just seeing how spicy Jesus gets. I love spicy Jesus. And that's probably because I'm very sarcastic, blunt, and witty myself. Um, one of the names that Zach has for me in group chats is Nuclear Godzilla. If you don't know what Godzilla is, he just rampages everything. That's one of my nicknames I have in group chats. What I'm not saying is I'm anything like Jesus, but what I am saying when it comes to the scriptures, Jesus is definitely a nuclear Godzilla in the chat. Like, he just wrecks people's lives with the things that he says. And so it's really, really cool to see that happen. And so um, with that being said, all jokes aside, um, if you get to these places, if you get to these hard realities of scripture, we have a few options. Scott mentioned them last week. We have a few different options that we can do. We can walk away. We can just completely ignore it like it never happened. We can skip it and forget it's in the Bible, just all together, which is just the same as ignoring it. We can skip it, and I'll find out what it means later, which I can tell you more often than not, if you skip it and try to find out what it means later, you're just going to forget that it's in the Bible altogether. <laughs> and so, or you can do this last thing, which I think is super important. That's dig in. You can agree with the text, but remain and ask Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is who reveals truth to us. And you can wrestle with text. You can be enlightened by the text. And the things that Scott mentioned that would happen is that you submit, you listen, you ask, you wait, you wait some more, and then you grow. I don't know exactly how that process works for everybody, but that is 
That feels like the process to me that works really well. When you decide to wrestle with the text, it's always going to end in growth. Um, and so we need to be wrestling with the hard things. And so when I think of this idea, I keep saying it, I think of this idea of wrestling with the text. Because if the sayings of Jesus bother you, that's a good thing. Like these hard sayings should bother you. They were meant to bother the people of the Bible, so they were in extension meant to bother us today, and they were meant to be hard for us to wrap our minds around. Because if they weren't hard, they wouldn't have done their job at all. And so tonight I want to encourage you to wrestle with the Lord when it comes to this specific passage. Um, because the reality is you can, we can read this tonight and you can walk away. You can decide to skip over it. And if you're willing to walk away or skip over the reality that's presented in the scriptures, I'm willing to argue that you're willing to skip and walk away from these realities being presented in your own life. And so, I want to encourage you to dig in. Um, and as we do that, I do believe that Jesus is actually going to transform our hearts and actually reveal things to, his, to us that we haven't quite yet invited him into. And so I'm going to pray before we get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for tonight. Uh, we thank you for uh, just the hard things that you say. Um, and we thank you for the, that we actually get to wrestle with the text um, and figure out what it means, trying to figure out what we agree or disagree with, and just be somewhat okay with the realities that you're presenting in scriptures. Um, but we're supposed to find it hard. So, Lord, maybe we just wrestle tonight um, and just enjoy the fellowship that we have here and be able to wrestle in communities. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, we're in Matthew 15. Go ahead and look at verse 21. The faith of the Canaanite woman. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to a district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying after us. He answered, I was only sent. To, those lost, to, the, sorry, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And so I don't know about you guys, but Jesus makes some pretty hard statements. He does some pretty hard things. And there's just some seemingly uncomfortable things that are happening in this passage. And so I just want to identify a few of those things. One, the Canaanite woman's daughter is oppressed by a demon. Like, that's just crazy. It always is crazy, just even reading that in the text. So that can oftentimes make us a little uncomfortable. Jesus responds to this reality in silence. He doesn't say a word. The disciples are irritated and annoyed at this woman crying out to Jesus. The fourth thing, the woman is begging in response to Jesus being silent. Fifth thing, when Jesus responds, he said it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The last thing that sometimes a lot of people skip over the woman accepts the title of dog and accepts crumbs. That, that one's pretty uncomfortable for me when I first read this passage. 
And so now that we're kind of uncomfortable with the text a little bit, and maybe you're sitting here thinking, thinking, that's not how you talk to people. That is not the Jesus that I know and that I have chosen to believe in. Well, before we place a view or an opinion on this passage, we have to look backwards. And this, is, and this is where we actually start wrestling with the text. Why? Because I think these kinds of passages need context. For example, for some reason this is the only example I could think of, uh, if I just walked up and said, I smoke, most of you guys are probably thinking cigarettes at the moment and how bad that is, right? But if I were to tell you, or somebody else may have heard, like, oh, no, Kenny just actually only smokes cigars once or twice a year. You'd be like, oh, that's chill, Right? The sentence has been finished. There's more context to that. I ran this example by my wife, by the way. She's the one who clarified the once or twice a year thing. So it's that reality of like, oh, he smokes, but it's only cigars. That's fine. Once you got more context, it was like, okay, you're cool. But at the same time, if it was like serious, like, oh, that's bad, dude. You shouldn't be smoking cigarettes. So you need that context because we don't want to jump to conclusions without the context. And so with that being said, verse 21 tells us that Jesus came from somewhere. And because it's in this passage, we need to treat it like therefore. And if any of you guys know the phrase surrounding therefore, what's the therefore, therefore, we need to treat it like that because it's in this passage. So we need to look back to where he came from to see if the passage before actually is in line with the passage that we're in. Because typically, there aren't, really much, there aren't many random events with Jesus. And so when we look backwards, we're actually going to understand that this moment is not coincidental, as it rarely is with Jesus. It is not obscene or slanderous in any regard. What is actually happening, what we're actually going to see is a cultural moment between this Canaanite woman and the house of Israel. And so we're going to look at Matthew 15, 10 through 20. What defiles a person. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He, he answered, Every plant that, may, that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. Let, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth and passes in the stomach is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a, per a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And so to even give you a little bit further context to this passage, before Jesus is with the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're coming at him because they ate food without washing their hands. And they proclaimed that it was defiling to do that. And so he, Jesus combats that and tells them that you hold fast to your traditions. You're defining these things for yourselves. And so we reach this place. And Jesus actually explains what defiles a person. Because the Pharisees are so ridiculous that they actually limited the spiritual standing of a human being to whether or not you wash your hands before dinner. Like, I don't know about you guys, but that's kind of crazy. But also... It is kind of gross to not wash your hands before you eat dinner, but that's not the point. That doesn't determine someone's spiritual standing. But at the same time, <clears throat> sorry, lost my place. What Jesus is emphasizing is actually a matter of the heart. 
right? He's not, he's not focusing on the hands. He's not focusing on these random things that, like, you need to do this in order to be clean. He's focused on matters of the heart because that's where it starts. That's a lot of his mission. He always is talking about matters of the heart. And from this place, from our heart, we are really susceptible to certain things such as slander, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, false testimony. All these things come from the heart. It's what comes out of the mouth. It's from the inside out that defiles a person. And so I'm not going to talk about everything in this passage, but hopefully what you're kind of understanding a little bit is there's some dots that are to be connected before we get to this instance with the Canaanite woman. And so I just want to emphasize a few of the points here. The first phrase that we see, or one of the phrases that we see is the heart. Right? The, center, the, the heart is actually the center and seat of spiritual life. That is the exact definition when you look at this passage. The center and seat of spiritual life. And the heart is always in reference to the reality of things that are at the core of who we are. It's always talking about who we are at our core identity. The things that come out need to be pruned away. The next phrase we see is evil thoughts. Uh, this definition is very simple. Evil doesn't really have many definitions. Evil is just opposition to God. At its blanket statement, it's opposition to God or an action of, of opposition to God. And so evil thoughts are thoughts that are in opposition to God, but those actually are birthed in your heart. And one of the crazy things, evil is most associated with the one specific character in the Bible, and that is the devil or Satan. And oftentimes, it's so associated with him that it is his title. He is called evil. And so when we are having these evil thoughts, we're actually acting according to not the Lord's will, but the devil would will that we would actually be evil and turn away from the Lord, and that's where we're placing our heart when we do these things. The third word I want to look at is slander. This word means injurious speech to another person of a good name. Slander can be directed at anyone. You can try to injure anyone's name. And the last one, probably my favorite one in the, the word study that I did for this passage is false testimony. The phrase is pseudo-marturia. And if you break it down, pseudo, although we've heard that word in our culture, it means false, fake, not the real thing. And then marturia is actually where we get the word martyr from. And so this means witness or testimony. And so in short, even though we're unpacking a word, it's the idea of not bearing the proper witness that we ought to. And so with that being said, why does this matter? How does this pertain to the story that we're in? Jesus says these are the things that actually defile a person. All of these things are a byproduct of someone who is actually not understanding how they're supposed to walk with the Lord and interact with others. And many of these things were done by the Pharisees, by the scribes, by Jewish people, and they've done it all in the name of the Lord. And so what is Jesus trying to do when we get to the Canaanite woman? And we're going to find that in a second because historically speaking, Jews have spoken ill will and ill things over the Gentile nations. And what we're going to talk about in a little bit, that, that wasn't supposed to be the case. If we look at the Abrahamic covenant, they were meant to be a blessing to the nation. That included the Canaanites. And so when we get to our story, I think Jesus is actually teaching the disciples a lesson out of the conversation, out of the situation he just came from. And so there's a reason why 
and then he went from where he, the place that he was, and now we're here. Because Jesus doesn't go places by accident. All his travels um, are purposeful. And so I would argue that he actually knows this woman's faith. Many people, many, a lot of scholars would say that he discovered Gentile faith. I don't think that's true. I think he knows this woman's faith. And at the same time, I would argue also that a lot of the things that he says aren't just for the disciples, but they are for her. He is testing her faith. And so with that context, we'll read the passage one more time, and then we'll go line by line and make a few observations. Verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even, excuse me, the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done, uh, sorry, be it done for, you as, for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And so when we read this story, it can be really easy to get wrapped up in the things that make us uncomfortable or the things that we disagree with. But there's a lot happening in this passage, and I think Jesus has something that he is saying to the Gentile and the disciple which means that he has a whole lot to say to us as the Gentile and the disciple. So let's look at it line by line and make some observations. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. The key thing to note here is where he was going. These are not Jewish communities. He's not just walking somewhere wanders like, oh, I just ended up here. He actually went to a Gentile community. And I really believe this is no accident. Jesus always travels with purpose. And oftentimes, when he travels to Gentile territories, he has a specific purpose. And we always see him meeting a specific individual. Let me look at verse, 20, uh, verse 22. I think, and you may disagree with me, that's okay. I think the Canaanite woman is that specific individual. Because we see a Canaanite went from the came out and was crying. She approached Jesus. And I want to note something very powerful in this moment. A Canaanite woman, historically, Canaanites are ancient enemies of Israel. She had no reason to approach Jewish people. But she runs passionately to and before the Lord. She is weeping. She is bringing all her needs before him in this moment. And she does a few things. The first thing that she does, well, one of the first things that she does is recognize who Jesus is, right? Lord can be seen as a general term, but then she says, son of David. She knows exactly who Jesus is and the lineage that he comes from, probably pointing all the way back to Hammer. She knows who Jesus is. And then she presents the case of her daughter having a demon. This is where she actually recognizes Jesus' authority and power. You don't just tell somebody, my daughter has a demon, and it's like, okay, cool, you're not going to do anything about it. She actually is putting this before him because she knows that he has the power, and only he has the power to heal her. 
And I think the last thing is super important, that she humbles herself before him as she's interceding on her daughter's behalf. She asks for mercy first. As she's coming to him, she asks for mercy first. And then next we see something very interesting that is done by Jesus, also done by the disciples. And this series is called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Yet the first hard thing we come to in regards to Jesus is he doesn't say a single thing. He doesn't say a single word to this woman. He gives her the silent treatment. And then here come the disciples. They come begging for him to send her away. It can almost be read as, Lord, send her away. She's annoying. Give her what she needs. Send her on her way. And as we know, that's probably because of how Jesus responded to them afterwards. They're super annoyed. And this is typical behavior of Jews to Gentiles. And I'm not just talking about how the disciples handled the situation, but the silence that was given to this woman was most likely one of the things that priests or scribes did to Gentiles. And so we see Jesus taking an idea and beginning to flip it on its head. And in verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. This is another hard moment of Jesus. It would seem that he's clearly stating he is not there for Gentiles, but only Jewish people, only the Israelites. And there's much debate about what this sentence actually means. Um, among scholars, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, like, what is he actually saying here? It could be the literal house of Israel, or it could be the figurative, figurative house of Israel, where it includes the embodiment of Christ and the church. And so there's a lot of debate. But two things I think we need to make sure we're paying attention to is that he says this to the disciples. For some reason, he, felt, he feels the need. They're begging. He goes, well, I only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Like, I think that's super, super interesting that he just tells the disciples that. He doesn't tell the woman that. And it almost feels like he's actually talking to them of, like, I came for the lost sheep. I came for you guys. And so the reality with this and the hard part about this is it could be interpreted that way, that he did only come for Israel. But the reality is he was sent to the house of Israel. That is Jesus' mission. He actually is truthfully declaring his mission, that he came to the house of Israel. There were specific promises and covenants made with the house of Israel that he came to fulfill. And he's simply saying, that's what I came to do. Now, disclaimer with that, it can be interpreted that he did not come for the Gentiles. I would argue that we would not be sitting in this room if that was the case. In reality, he did come for the Gentiles. He just didn't come to the Gentiles. He came to the house of Israel. That's where his mission was born out of. And this actually points back to Genesis. Um, if Genesis 12.3 states the promise of God to Abraham and that where the blessing lies, it is those in Abraham and from Abraham. So there's two distinctions that the entire all the nations will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed by, from Abraham down. And we're going to talk more about that just in a little bit. And so now, verse 26, and he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. All right. We made it to spicy Jesus, as if he wasn't being spicy enough already. Maybe you're thinking, 
oh, audacity of Jesus because why would you talk to a woman alone like that? But why would, he, why would Jesus talk about that? And because it's Jesus, we can translate his spiciness, and I, I like this. We can translate it as divine audacity. Like, how many times does, like, the Lord have divine audacity? And it's like, man, I can't believe you just said that, but dang. And so we just got to wrestle with that. And we, can, we here can get hung up on these hard moments. But, again, this is a hard saying. And what I'm not up here to do is negate that this is hard. I am not up here to negate that this is a hard saying, but what I am hoping is that you understand this saying in a much new light. He calls this woman a dog, and there's no way around it. And so there's two things I want to make note of. The word dogs, and then what Mark actually writes about this. The word dog here is not the typical use of the word. Typically, the word is associated with unclean, to be discarded, to be on the streets, wandering all their days until they die. But the word here is actually little dog. Now, that doesn't make much of a difference, but little dog, domesticated dog, which then translates to pet. Why is that distinction important? One, Jesus kind of softens the blow a little bit to this woman, but he's still calling her a dog. But the, the main implication of this is if you think about a pet, domesticated dog, sorry, or a little dog, typically they are cared for in some manner. My dog has a place in the house. It's my pet. So if you think, like, domesticated dogs have a place in the house somewhere or at least a proximity to the house, and they're actually not that far away from the house. So this idea of little dog is huge. Because that is the kind that Jesus is like, you're not too far off. You're actually really, 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 really close. And the other thing about this word is that it's plural. It doesn't say, I shouldn't throw it to you, a dog. It says dogs. And so one can assume the plurality of this word actually is in reference to those who are regarded the same. He's talking about multiple dogs, and we see in a passage before this that he's actually, he actually talks about this region and how they're actually going to turn to him in some capacity. And so she's talking about, he, or she, he's talking about Gentiles really as a whole and that there is something for them as he's talking about the nearness to the house. And then this, this leads us to the Mark account. Mark 7.27 says, let the children be fed first. Now, that's not random. This would indicate something that is going to come after. There is an order. You don't just say first. There is something to come after first, whether that be leftovers, whether that be seconds, whether that be another meal. Something is to follow that. But either way, it's still hard to wrestle with this because he still goes along with the analogy of her being a dog. And now we get to verse 27. And by this point, I feel like when I was first reading this, and I can't remember the last before that, but when I started reading it, I was like, okay, I love spicy Jesus, but this is really difficult. And I was lit up by the time I got to verse 27. I was like, no, he didn't. Like, he did not just call this woman a dog. And, but this made me more mad than him calling her a dog. 
She accepts being called a dog. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Ladies, who in this room would accept being called a dog? I know it's a bold question, but I can guarantee the answer is you would not accept being called a dog. Like, I want you, like, that's just something hard for somebody to accept. Whether you can be called a puppy or a big dog, it's still hard to be called a dog. But she accepts this. And so this woman comes humbly before Jesus, recognizing who he is, declaring what he can do by offering, by offering her daughter to be healed. And she begs. And then she gets called a dog. And then she accepts it. But what we need to pay attention to is what this woman is actually saying. Because what she is actually saying is the thing, uh, <clears throat> the thing of value. She is actually saying, yes, I understand that your mission is first to Israel. But I don't need the leftovers. I don't need seconds. I don't need that. The crumbs that which they are letting fall down by the wayside, I will take those. The crumbs themselves are enough. And so we get to verse 28, and Jesus declares this woman has great faith, which we conclude that Jesus is actually testing this woman's faith through very, very hard circumstances in a very, very short amount of time. And so in a lot of ways, this was for that woman's sake, and if not, everybody that she was going to go and tell's sake. But I'd also be willing to say that she her faith was tested for the sake of the disciples as well, so they can understand. He just spent time asking them, do you still not understand in the previous passages? He's bringing them to a place of greater understanding. They saw the whole thing go down. After they said, send her away, we don't hear another word from them. In both accounts, they do not speak. So he goes to a place by Jewish traditions and in some biblical account where people are defiled and considered unclean. Yet Jesus goes there and runs into this woman who displays great faith, and as she is displaying this faith and recognition, Jesus had four answers to this woman, outward expressions that would allude to the conversation before they got to this place. One was silence. And in the silence, as much as we like to like, oh, that's, that sucks that Jesus did that, it actually revealed the heart of the disciples, the discomfort of the disciples. As he goes silent, this kind of festering happens where she is begging, and they're like, please send her away. Just give her what she needs. And the next thing, I'm only here for the lost sheep. With this being a brutal truth of Jesus' mission, yet at the same time, in light of the context, This is something the Pharisees, the scribes, and other Jews to those who were deemed defiled and unclean. So they would have said these things to Gentiles. And lastly, he proclaims her faith. And he only does this twice in all of Scripture, where he proclaims great faith. One is this woman right here. The second is a centurion. There's only two instances where he proclaims great faith and they just so happen to not be Jewish people and they just so happen to be Gentiles. There is something to that reality. 
And so that lets us know that, that the message that Jesus has is for the Gentiles. But first he needs to go to the house of Israel. And what he's trying to show them, that these people that you have deemed defiled and unclean actually have great faith. And I needed you to see that. Why? Because he is, his mission is to the house of Israel. And if Jesus' mission is to the house of Israel first, when we read later on in Scripture, the house of Israel's mission was to the Gentiles second. It was their job, once Jesus was gone, to go to the Gentile nations. And so, like I mentioned before, the house of Israel is what Genesis 12.3 is talking about. And in you, the families of the earth will be blessed. This idea of in you is that it's not necessarily the lineage of you, but those who are in, in the core values of what you believe, choosing to accept what God has done and actually believing in that. That is what in you actually means. And so that extends it to people who would believe in God. That extends it to you and I. And so in order for this promise to be fulfilled, he needed to go to the lost sheep of the house first so they then could go out and scatter and be a blessing to the nations from there. And so I'm going to argue that this actual moment, like we said, is a cultural moment, but it's, a, it's prep work. This whole moment is prep work for the house of Israel so that we can see of like, how do we actually engage with people? If we have these preconceived notions and judgments, how can we actually do what Jesus just did? How can we actually even go to our own brothers and sisters in this room if we have these preconceived notions about other people? He's trying to get them to understand the heart transformation that they need in order to operate in the mission that he is going to call them to. And the reality is they were already called to this mission. He's there because they did not understand. And he's trying to call them out of being hypocrites. Jesus is letting them know that the very slander, the very false testimony, the evil thoughts that defile a person have come from the house of Israel. It's come from their hearts. They were supposed to be a blessing to the nation. And I would argue that they would spend more time cursing the nation on their own will rather than trying to judge people's hearts. They just judge the person right then and there. So where does that leave us? Most would rest on the fact that we need to have faith like the Canaanite woman because we are the Gentiles of today. Although I do think that is a fair assumption of the text, we are also the disciples in the text. And I think there are two implications of the text as we look at it. The first one is that Jesus will say hard things to test our faith. The faith of the Canaanite woman is obvious, and it really hits us in the face. So it's hard not to recognize that reality in which the text is presenting. But I am hesitant to say that we need to have faith like the Canaanite woman. Because I don't think Yahweh is in the business of comparing faith to faith. Not in that regard where we're always comparing ourselves to somebody else of like, I wish I had faith like that. Yahweh wants you as you are. And he's seeking to actually increase your faith in him, not compare your faith to somebody else. 
And so when we look at the Canaanite woman, she gave an example, actually, how to seek Jesus even through the moments he's saying hard things to her. She had the faith before she got there. And he said hard things, and she endured those hard things in order to grow out of those hard things, kind of like what we talked about when we wrestle with the text. It ended in growth for that woman. And the second implication as the disciples are, we seeing the beautiful testimony that others' faith is displaying. Are we noticing that? This has the ability to reveal things in our hearts. And more often than not, Jesus, in these moments, is speaking directly to us. And it has the ability to re- reveal many sinful patterns, or even just moments of sin. And this is to convict us to grow and prepare us to go to other people. We are part of the house of Israel. We are in the family. We are Gentiles. We were were brought into the family. We are the lost sheep. So Jesus is here for us. And according to the promise made to Aaron and fulfilled by Jesus, like I said, we are in him. Therefore, we are now to go out to others in faith, and see other humans as potentially having great faith. And we'll only recognize that as should they have the opportunity to kneel before Jesus, just like the Canaanite woman. And as we witness, we will minister to others and be ministered to. And so, with this series being called The Hard Sayings of Jesus, yet you could be wondering, why haven't you said this saying isn't actually as hard as it seems? Well, it's because this moment is actually as hard as it seems. Like, it really is a hard moment in Scripture. And so my job is not to keep you from wrestling with these texts. I'm not here to negate the hard sayings of Jesus. I'm here to affirm them and hopefully bring clarity to them to the best of my ability because I also wrestle with them too. My job is to try to reveal the nature of what seems like Jesus is doing in the midst of the story. And what reality is, is what he's placed on my heart to reveal to you guys. And hopefully we can learn something for what he's trying to do in our hearts today. And so that's something we are all, we're always going to wrestle with that in the text. And so hopefully the Lord has been speaking to you tonight. And I really do hope that he has convicted you in some way. But to close tonight, in light of what I think the Lord is trying to get us to reflect on a few things. And these are just through a series of questions. How are our hearts? Do we have prejudgments or preconceived notions that are allowing us to not dignify other image bearers? Is this stopping us from being a blessing to the nations? Are we thinking about ourselves in our traditions or our norms and defining blessing only in accordance with ourselves. And because I'm hesitant to ask if you have faith like the Canaanite woman, and the reason why I say that is because I already believe we have the faith like her. We are here. We have that faith. We're here at the feet of Jesus as we learn in community. So I'll I'll reword the question just a little differently. In and out of your faith, are we recognizing who Jesus is like the Canaanite woman? Are we enduring the hard things at the feet of Jesus, proclaiming his name, not slandering it? 
and interceding for others and not allowing our evil thoughts to come in and bearing a great testimony of faith and not a false one. Are we like the disciples and being in proximity? Because if the disciples had to choose, they wouldn't have been there. But are we in proximity to Jesus and others to witness what the Lord is doing in one another's life? All the while listening to what he's actually trying to say to us. Are we paying attention to what the Lord is trying to say to us as we look at a hard story like this? Or as the Lord is saying hard things to us as we witness or he's speaking directly to us? We need to be wrestling with that.